Today on I'll Have You Know. It's become a thing that I've latched onto and really enjoy, but it's not something I ever thought of. coming out of business school would I be advising clients and you know, holding their hand through good and bad times. And you know, I thought I would just be a, a pencil pusher and moving around ones and zeros on a, on a computer screen. Jonathan McAdams had his eyes set on asset management. His MBA at Rice helped put him on that track. His career has led him to managing large institutional portfolios, to helping high net worth individuals. Today, we talk to him about what investor biases he sees repeated consistently, his analysis of the markets during the pandemic, and how managing a career as a senior portfolio manager works with seven children at home. Joining us today on Owl Have You Know, Jonathan McAdams Rice Business Class of 2001, speaking with us from Greenville, South Carolina. Jonathan, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. You're currently Senior Portfolio Manager for WCM Global Wealth. I know you're a, a former Aggie, also an owl. Talk to us a little bit about your upbringing in Houston and how you decided to go to both of those universities. Sure, yeah. I'm native Houstonian, actually second generation native Houstonian. So it's, it's home to me and still is, even though I haven't been there uh, in a while. Coming out of high school, I went and you know, grew up on the southwest side of town, Sugarland area. And I uh, you know, looked at a number of schools and just really found a home at Texas A&M in terms of just the culture and the, the people and the, um, the alumni network. And it just really felt comfortable to me. Started out thinking I wanted to be an electrical engineer. And that was simply because that was what my dad was. <laughs> but, you know, I like enjoyed math and science. And so started that path and um, about a semester into it, I uh, quickly realized I did not want to be an engineer for the rest of my life. So kind of gravitated to, to business and specifically finance. Um, and so got my finance degree at A&M and uh, I went back to work for a couple of years, um, about, you know, four and a half years, was a broker at Merrill Lynch and then worked in uh, retail banking for a number of years, both on the retail and then in the private bank. My goal coming out of A&M and even during those working years was I really wanted to get into asset management. Um, kept getting closer and closer, but really couldn't quite get all the way there. And so decided to go back and get my MBA to try to really help me get that stepping stone to break into the business. And so that's what led me to go back and get my MBA. And then even though I wanted to do asset management, I knew I didn't want to be in Boston or New York or you know one of the Northeastern cities. I just you know, really didn't want to live there if I didn't have to. So looked in the South, looked in the Midwest um, at schools and Rice. While being in Houston, you know, it was a little bit of a draw. You know, Rice at the time, you know, it was, it was on the upswing, you know, new dean, uh, really trying to climb up the rankings. Um, so it was, you know, a good value, a quality school, you know, a lot of good things going for it. You know, I really liked the, the teaching focus. You know, they didn't just hire professors that you know, did research and that's what they're known for, but they wanted to, wanted actually good teachers. And so that was important to me as well. And as an investment guy, <laughs> um, I kind of viewed it as, you know, I'm, I'm buying a stock that that's on the upswing. Uh, nevertheless, you know, I felt like I was getting a good value and that Rice was kind of on its way to making a name for itself. And that's, I think that's borne out, but that's kind of how I ended up up there. Well, that was your first smart investment, number one, I think. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
we've definitely seen the program grow in in it's been almost two decades, I guess, since since you were there. And they consistently seem to rank pretty high in the finance uh, rankings for business schools. So that must make you feel good and and proud um, looking back on your decision to go there. Yeah, and that was you know one of the things that drew me there was was that they were even at the time they were strong on the finance side. Since that time, you have quite a, a breadth of assets that you've worked with or in from multi-billion dollar funds, institutional retail, even high net worth clients. Can you talk a little bit about uh, just your progression? And do you have a, a favorite among those in in who you're working with? I've had the luxury, I think, of kind of seeing a lot of different sides of asset management in terms of you know pools of money that I'm on. I started out on the mutual fund side as a senior analyst. Uh, there's a large uh, fund company uh, AIM, which was the largest fund company in Houston at the time, started out with them. It was a $30 billion fund. I mean, we were uh, moving around, you know, each trade was, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. My first assignment there was, you know, they had me build a Microsoft model and, you know, we went through it and figured out that we, we wanted to buy some more. And they're like, okay, buy, you know, I think it was like 25 basis points of the fund, you know, by, you know, it's $250 million trade. <laughs> you know, it was a sticker shock. So, you know, I'm, I'm this kid out of school pushing around $250 million um, and really enjoyed it. Great culture, great environment. Did my internship summer of 2000 and then graduated 2001. So the tech bubble was already in full force uh, collapsing. Fortunate that the, the portfolio manager that I was working for was leaving uh, AIM uh, that I had worked for for about two years and was going to launch a hedge fund. So he asked me to come with him and, and help him do that. Um, and so I got my taste of the hedge fund business. Uh, and that's what moved me to Nashville. And I've done high net worth. Uh, so the last, you know, call it, 10, 11 years, I've been, you know, on the high net worth side slash hedge fund, you know, where we've run uh, some of that that money side by side. And, you know, they're all different perspectives. I I like the, you know, the high net worth side or the the retail side. When you're managing large pools of money for institutions, it it becomes kind of nameless, even though, you know, you know, you're managing pension money and it's people's retirement and, you know, you feel good about that. But it's still a little bit, you know, detached from uh, the people who are actually investing. So, you know, I enjoy, you know, kind of on this side of the ball where I'm sitting across the table from somebody and talking about their investments and what they want to do with it. And, you know, it just puts a kind of a personal uh, touch on it. That's, that's unique. Um, and so I, yeah, that's kind of where I've been past couple of years and I enjoy that aspect of it. Yeah, definitely that personalization. Certainly been an interesting year uh, when it comes to investments. Um, have you been surprised at all by the stock market's reaction to the pandemic and just just the wild ride we've been on? Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Um, when the whole thing started in kind of late February, early March, you know, it was kind of this panic of this is something we've never dealt with before. The market had never dealt with before. We as a society, at least, you know, in recent memory, never dealt with what happens when you shut down an economy. <laughs> And so there was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of, you know, what I call trading in a vacuum, meaning, you know, no one had information. So with a lack of information and certainty, people pushed the sell button, you know, so it became this, you know, just get me out, um, created a lot of dislocation in the market, which nine times out of 10 and probably 10 times out of 10 are always opportunities. So, you know, we thought this, that it was a buying opportunity and not a selling opportunity. Um, And, you know, the markets come back and, I think on one level, you can look at it and go, 
well, how how's the market you know going to new highs when you know we still have massive unemployment, businesses are going out of business, um, you know, and all of that is true. But you know, I think when you kind of do a second level analysis and, and dig down, you see, okay, what enabled us at least to survive through this pandemic? It was technology, right? I mean, it was the ability to get on a on a internet call and work from home and push a couple of buttons on my app and get food delivered and um, you know, all of these things that technology enables allowed us to survive. Um, and all of the companies that provided those tools did really well. <laughs> so, you know, so when you look at, you know, what's kind of powered this market, it's, it's been those uh, companies, the Microsofts, the Amazons, the, um, you know, all of these, um, these companies that benefit from that. So, you know, and then here in the U.S., you know, we have a disproportionate kind of weighting towards those types of companies. And so the U.S. market has obviously done way better than some international markets. You know, many international markets are still down on here um, um, because they don't have that technology, those technology weightings that we have in the U.S. So, you know, we kind of parse through it. And, and the reality is, you know, when you think about the S&P 500, that's the 500 largest companies in the world are in the U.S. Um, you know, they're not the corner, you know, spa and bar. And those companies aren't traded on a stock exchange. The ones that are traded on a stock exchange are, the Walmarts and the Amazons that have the resources to be able to pivot and say, okay, people are coming in our stores. What do we do to get them you know, to make a sale? Um, and so they increase their spending on digitization, you know, all these things. Um, and so they had the ability to pivot and spend the resources to, you know, adapt. Whereas, you know, a smaller mom and pop who, you know, frankly are still really struggling. Those aren't traded on, on the stock exchange, you know, so that's where the real pain is. And so that's why you've seen the market kind of do well while there's still a lot of, you know, kind of dislocation in the, in the economy. Definitely a crisis that uh, has hit Main Street much more than Wall Street. Right, right. You've had uh, experiences working with investors for, for a very long time. What kind of biases have you seen um, in your work? And is there is there a common thread that you see sort of happening or occurring again and again, regardless of of the investor and their situation or position? Yeah, there's there's definitely um, kind of these age-old biases that that seem to persist. You know, I was fortunate at Rice. Um, we had a professor, David Eikenberry, who was our investments uh, professor, and you know his his field of research was researching these kind of anomalies that shouldn't happen in the market but do because of investor biases. Right? We have you know, we're all human beings. We all have these kind of tendencies that aren't all all the time rational. We looked at a lot of those kind of um, irregularities in the market, probably the ones we see the most. Um, the pain of loss is, is, you know, two to three times that of gains. How that manifests is, you know, as soon as people start to lose money, it's imminently more painful to them than, you know, a similar gain on the other side. And so, you know, that's when people do irrational things because they, they don't, they want to relieve that pain. And the way to relieve that pain is to sell. Um, and that's almost always the wrong thing to do. And so what you see is, you know, you may say, okay, well, the XYZ market, you know, has, has done X percent over the last, you know, 20 or 30 years. But the average investor does way less than that because of that, those biases, right? They, you know, sell when they're scared and they buy when things are good, you know, right? So they're selling low and buying high. And so they realize gains are much less than what they could have done just by sitting tight. You know, when I'm sitting across the table from investors is, you know, a big portion of my job is as a, you know, 
kind of a psychologist, psychiatrist, you know, just yeah. keeping investors from doing the wrong thing. You know, I can walk through the analytics of it all day, but when people are scared, you've got to find a way to, you know, give them perspective and, and calm them down. So, so that's probably the one you, we deal with the most. And it's, you know, it manifests, it's what you see in the market, right? It's, you know, there's an old adage in the market, you know, the, the markets take the stairs up and the elevator down. And that's true. The average pullback in a market is usually over, you know, six to nine months, a year, something like that. But it takes years and years to kind of, you know, climb up. And that's because of that, you know, the once losses start to accelerate, people sell and then they sell and they get more scared and they sell more. And so that, that also creates opportunity, right? As an active investor, you know, you can take advantage if you realize what's going on. That's probably, you know, one of the biggest uh, kind of biases we see. I mean, there's 15 or 20 others that have been documented in different experiments, but that's probably one of the bigger ones. You know, anchoring is another big one where, you know, people anchor their expectations based on the recent past and not what's going to happen in the future. And so, you know, and that, that kind of feeds into, you know, people, when things are good, they're, they're kind of extrapolating from the good times and say, well, it's been good the past couple of years, you know, it's probably going to be good the next. And so, you know, the market is a forward discounting mechanism. Um, it's trying to figure out what's going to happen in the future. And so, and it, you know, it works both ways when the market's down, people are, it's going to say it's never going to get better. And when the market, you know, things are good, they're saying it's never going to be bad again. Um, and so you use that to, you know, kind of play, uh, play against each other. But, you know, those, those biases certainly exist. So you talked a little bit about um, just the behavior of, of clients and um, the role that you have in that. Is that something that maybe surprised you that you didn't expect when you were in business school or, or, or planning a career in asset management? just that the personal and the psychological aspect, or did you, were you pretty much prepared and you knew that was going to be a big part of it? I thought I'm just going to be an analyst behind a computer and crunch numbers and invest, you know, assets and, um, you know, be part of this big machine as I, you know, kind of progressed, you know, and particularly as I, you know, when I left the hedge fund and got into the, the RIA business or the advisory business you know, and started actually having to talk to clients and sit in front of them and, um, explain things and walk them through, you know, I, I found out there was a, there was a skill that I really didn't know I had um, and a muscle I hadn't really exercised, but it turns out, you know, I, I kind of had um, some knack for it. Um, and so, you know, it's become a thing that I've, you know, kind of latched onto um, and really enjoy, but it's not something I ever thought I, coming out of business school, will I be, you know, advising clients and, and doing, uh, you know, holding their hand through good and bad times and, you know, I thought I would just be a, a pencil pusher and move it around ones and zeros on a, on a computer screen. So I'm going to put you on the spot here. Generally speaking, what would some of your best investment advice be for 2021? That's a good question. Um, stick to your plan. You know, uh, have a long-term view. You know, don't try to guess every little wiggle in the market. Um, we've had clients that, you know, I've had clients that sold at the absolute bottom this year. Um, and I've had clients who are wanting to get back in here, you know, and so, um, you know, I think, you know, stick to your plan, particularly, you know, if, if this, if you're investing for a long-term goal, right. You know, most people are investing for retirement, you know, and it could be 10 years, 20 years, 30 years away, you know, you don't need to be pulling up your portfolio every day or every week or every month, really, um, you know, have a long-term view, don't try to trade the wiggles um, in the market. 
Uh, you know, and I, you know, I'm of the belief that, you know, having a good advisor, you know, really helps, like I said, because we all have these kind of in, ingrained, you know, biases that sometimes are harmful as we invest, you know, I think it's good to have somebody across the table who's been through some ups and downs and knows, you know, when the markets are down, we should be buying. When the markets are up, we should be selling. <laughs> we know you put a lot of hours in at the office, but it's not all work for you. Uh, I know you mentioned you play golf, also play the drums. Uh, is that something you still do actively? Uh, golf, not so much. So uh, I'm kind of in a stage of life um, where my kids are so active that that's really become my activities. But there was a time I was playing a lot of golf. Uh, <laughs> um and uh, drums, not so much anymore either. I, I played when I was at um, when I was in Nashville. I played a little bit with my church there. So uh, these days, it's just kind of what I do on the steering wheels, and not so much uh, formally anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I can see drums being a good stress reliever for any job. I think really probably do need to get my drums set up. Uh, you know, probably could have helped back in March. That's for sure. <laughs> And when you talk about your family, um, you're not kidding when you say they keep you busy. You have seven children, ages eight to 17, two sets of twins. Talk about just balancing that. And wow, your house has to be so, so active. If you had asked me, you know, kind of how, you know, you never know the, the, the path that life leads you. And if you had asked me how many, how big do you want your family? I probably would have never said <laughs> seven kids, but, <laughs> but here we are. Um, so yeah, no, it's it's tough. I mean, we had um, two sets of twins uh, 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 right off the bat. Um, so our first first kids were twins, and then our second set were were twins about three and a half years apart. So wow, um, there was about when our first twins were three and a half, and our um, second twins were newborns. It's about nine months that I really couldn't tell you what happened in the world. Um, <laughs> I really have no memory of at this point. Um, so yeah, they, it's definitely a, a handful and a full-time job. And my wife's a saint, um, you know, for all the things she does to keep the house running. But we're all in the, the age now where they're into their sports and activities. And it's, you know, traveling to baseball games and traveling to this or that. And so, um, you know, it's just kind of that, that phase of life. But, uh, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And I know uh, the seventh addition to your family has been a, a very special experience. Can you share a little bit about how this has all come about? Yeah, so we um, we got involved with an organization that uh, it's a what they call orphan hosting. And so what these organizations do, and there's several of them, um, they uh, bring in orphans from you know, various countries. The one we partnered with was uh, they bring in from Ukraine and from Latvia. And essentially what they do is they bring them over to the U.S. They spend, you know, the Christmas break with you or they spend the summer with you um, in your home um, and you just, you know, love on them and um, show them what life is like in America. And, um, you know, there's no, it's not a, an adoption, you know, focus per se, um, although a lot of the, the kids do end up getting adopted. But we never went in and with the the intent that we were going to adopt with, you know, especially given <laughs> we already had our hands full. Um, so we did it a couple times. We hosted uh, one girl over Christmas and then the next year, well, we weren't, weren't going to do it. Um, and then they called and said, Hey, we've got, you know, a girl that, you know, last minute, um, you know, would you take her? And we're, you know, like, 
right up at the deadline and said, yeah, we'll, we'll take it. And well, then that girl fell through. Um, and then, we, but we've got this other <laughs> um, good girl, would you take? And uh, we said, sure, you know, we'll, we'll do it. So we hosted her and um, over Christmas and uh, just really fell in love. And, you know, uh, I think I, you know, it, it's weird. You would think that my wife, you know, would, would have, um, been the one to say, you know, we need to adopt, you know, kind of ride out the shoe, but it was really me. It was like, kind of got put on my heart, you know, Hey, you know, I think we're supposed to adopt her, you know, but I didn't say anything uh, at first. Um, cause I wanted my wife to kind of come to that conclusion as well. And, uh, and, and we both did. And so at the end of the hosting period, which is about a month, uh, we asked her and she was, um, 15 at the time about to turn 16. And, uh, and we, so we asked her if she, uh, would like to be in her family and she said yes well was it right away she you know um she was going back we asked her right before she was to head back to ukraine she wanted to fly back and talk with people in her life and you know kind of think it over but uh she finally told us that she wanted to and so it was uh go from there we had to kind of hurry up because the limit um the age limit on adoption is 16 uh and so we had to get all the paperwork filed and in and um but it, it, it was about a year process and we ended up, um, you know, uh, bringing her home, um, you know, uh, fortuitously this year in February. So we literally, you know, it was mid-February when we brought her home, um, you know, right before everything shut down. Had we not, you know, gotten under that window, um, you know, she might still be there. <laughs> so she went from being an orphan to having six brothers and sisters in a family um, within, what, a year, year and a half's time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's been a transition, you know, uh, you know, there's ups and downs with that whole process for sure. But, um, you know, I think she's doing well and fitting in with the family. And um, so it's, but yeah, it, it's you know, particularly, you know, being that she was already a teenager, right? You know, you already come in with, you know, kind of a, uh, an idea of, of who you are and, you know, where you're headed and or might be headed. And so that all kind of turned upside down uh, for her. Um, and then obviously with the pandemic and, you know, online learning and, you know, there's just been a lot of curveballs thrown at her this year. So it's been, uh, certainly a challenge, but, uh, she's risen to it and, uh, you know, it's, it's been, I think good for her and, and for us as a family. That's a wonderful story and making such a difference. And I know, uh, there's so many Rice alums who have just such impressive careers and, and what they've done, but I also think it's important to take time to talk about, uh, what they're doing you know, outside of their job. And this, this is just a blessing to this girl and just the, you know, the way that you've been able to contribute, um, through this program is, is, uh, you know, just impossible to, to replace. Everyone kind of gives back in their own way. And, um, I would have never thought this would be, <laughs> one way we'd, be <laughs> we'd be doing that. Um, but like you said, sometimes you know, your plans aren't your own. Um, right. so we've definitely kind of, rolled with it. But uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a challenge, but it's been rewarding as well. So with, with seven kids, and I know obviously the, uh, the age range would vary, but do you give them much advice, even at this young age about, you know, looking forward and, and planning for their future and making good financial decisions, even, you know, even when you're um, first earning money? You know, depending on the age, you know, they all kind of know what I do. Some of them know more than others, depending on how old they are. Um, <laughs> But yeah, you try to, you know, try to instill, you know, those nuggets of, you know, saving early and, you know, with having 
six now seven kids you see you know we've kind of got a little bit of almost every kind of personality right we've got one son who you know as soon as money hits his pocket it's in his hand and spending it somewhere um versus and then you know his twin you know just squirrels it away you know and saves it um all the time so we all kind of kind of have these ingrained you know uh, characteristics you know um personality traits i guess um so i don't have to coach one as much on saving as i do the other um but, but yeah we tried to you know you know do little things like hey instead of spending that why don't we uh save it and i'll match you you know kind of like a matching program i'll match you if you keep it saving it for a year and um you know try those little kind of things and you know i'll walk them through you know the the power of compounding, you know, as they get older, you know, the power of compounding, if you start now, <laughs> you know, right, right. Um, it's much, much easier than starting 20 or 30 years from now. So, um, so those little things, you know, I probably given our, the hectic and craziness over the life, I probably don't do as much as I should, but uh, I try to where I can. Sounds like you could do a whole case study just with your, your family. You could have every personality and, and, and the way they spend and, and are disciplined about it. <laughs> it really is. It's so funny just seeing, you know, coming from the same two gene pools <laughs> to be so, right. so different in, um, in their personalities and how they save money, but it's, you know, reflective of how, uh, everyone is. And so we've got, we've got clients that, you know, don't spend a penny and, and, you know, have. You know, and then we've got clients who, who uh, you know, go through it like water. So, as you look back on on your rice business experience, and you know, to where you are now, and you've you've had time to look back on it, uh, what are just some reflections you have ab about the program, and and something that you would want to share for either a potential student, a current student, or maybe someone who wants to follow in your footsteps with your career path? You know, I think for me, you know. I had a very clear direction what I wanted to do when I went back to grad school. Not everyone does, um, but I'm, you know, I would say, you know, it, it was a good, for me, it was a stepping stone to do, you know, what I wanted to do. Um, and, um, you know, so I would say, you know, the, the things that drew me there and the things that I think that, you know, current students or, you know, um, are thinking about going back is, you know, take advantage of that network. That Rice offers. It's one of you know one of the strongest um, among schools, and you know do the, the the little networking things that they teach you on day one. You know how to how to network and you know things to do and you know. But not everyone you know we all hear it when we when we arrive on campus, but not everyone does it. And for instance, when I was interviewing for my um, internship in uh, at AIM, you know that was kind of in the in the spring, but in the fall, you know after kind of hearing the the talk on, you know, how to network and how to use the, the alumni database, you know, I said, I, I called, you know, one of our alumni that worked at AIM, you know, in that fall and just said, hey, tell me about what you do, you know, no expectation, just what is, what does this job look like on a day-to-day -day basis? And she, you know, very, very nice and very friendly and walked me through. And, you know, sure enough, when it came time to interview, um, you know, we already had a report and, and we'd already talked before and, Turns out they offered me the job and, you know, she kind of confided me afterwards and said, you know what, you were the only one who reached out to me, um, of the, you know, of the people from Rice that interviewed, you were the only one that, that connected with me last fall and reached out and asked me, you know, to network. And, and, and so it's, it's those little things, you know, um, that you never know. And so, you know, they just do those little things extra. Um, you know, I, I tell my, 
my kids that all the time. Don't just get the job done, but do it well. Um, you know, do it with with excellence. Um, you know, because you know, majority of people, you know, don't do the extra things. Um, and if you can, you just you know that those eventually get noticed. And you know, I would say you know, keep learning. You know, I think um, you know, Rice was a great environment for me. Um, there's some people who want to get investments or something and say, well, I just want to study finance. I don't want to learn all this other stuff. Um, but, you know, looking back, I'm glad I did. You know, I had more of a well-rounded course offering um, because when you invest, you're, you know, you're, you got to know strategy. You got to know operations. You got to know marketing um, when you're analyzing these companies. And so I'm, I'm glad I had that experience and I'm glad I broadened my kind of knowledge base. Um, and that doesn't stop, you know, when you leave Rice, I think, either. I think you've got to always continue to be, be learning. And uh, as the world changes, you got to change with it. And so those are, those are going to be my, my nuggets of wisdom. Jonathan McAdams, Rice Business Class of 2001. Thank you so much for joining us on I'll Have You Know. My pleasure. I've enjoyed it. This has been I'll Have You Know. Thanks for listening. You can find links and more information about our guests, hosts, and announcements on our website, business.rice.edu. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you find your favorite podcasts and leave us a comment while you're at it and let us know what you think. I'll Have You Know is a production of Rice Business and is sponsored by the Rice Business Alumni Board. The hosts of I'll Have You Know are myself, David Drugliever, and Christine Dobbin.